0: Blog Talk
1: Radio The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me
2: John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace To You. If you've never contacted Grace To You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's p-e-a-c-e at g-t-y.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's
3: grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. It seems as though every eight or nine, ten years, I am struck again by how confused people are about the church and what the church is. And it almost needs to be redefined again. I think we're at that kind of time now. It's been a number of years since we have explicitly looked at what the Word of God says about the church. We are the church. We live as the church. We are the living, breathing church of Jesus Christ. So we understand our own life. and We understand it clearly as we have endeavored to pattern it after the Word of God, but there are so many who who don't understand. Over the last few years, about 2,000 of you have become members of Grace Church, and you have added your life to the lives of all those who previously have become members of our church. And by becoming a member, you have said, I'm going to make a full commitment of my life to this congregation. You have, by... The power of God, being added to the church the Lord adds to His church, He adds to His church, but even those whom He adds to the church, sometimes, in fact more frequently than ever, don't openly, publicly declare themselves as a part of His church. Popular thing to say you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. But there's a real disconnect when you say, I have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, but no personal relationship with His church. I really want to address that because I think that's a fabrication and deception that has found a place in the thinking of many professing Christians today. Many of you are members of Grace Community Church, and you have poured your life and soul into this church as believers must others of you come regularly or irregularly sporadically some of you maybe just visiting us for the first time or in recent times you've started attending but you're really on the outside looking in you haven't identified you haven't made a commitment you don't see your relationship to local congregation as an absolute necessity, you haven't committed to faithful involvement. And it probably is due to some natural forces that are working against the spiritual forces that the Spirit of God is operating in your life. And you need to understand what, what is right, what you need to do. For the sake of those who are not members and looking in from the outside, and for the sake of those of you who are new members and maybe don't understand all that's involved in that, I want to make sure that I've discharged my responsibility as your shepherd to help you understand the church. And this morning I'm just going to give a a personal uh, overview of the church, and then over the weeks that unfold after this we'll dig down into some of the glorious details of the church. I need to speak to you as the shepherd that the Lord has given you for my sake and to discharge my responsibility before the Lord and for yours as well so that you can be fully blessed by being fully responsive. And it's been a number of years since I've done this. Now let's kind of begin at the beginning we all understand that God is sovereign; that He rules. We even know the terminology: God is the great King over His kingdom. But there are two ways to understand the kingdom of God. One is universal, and one is particular. God is the King over His, the King over His universal kingdom, in the sense that He rules the universe throughout time and eternity, and He rules, therefore, all that is in His universe. He rules singularly as the triune God. No one can thwart His rule. No one can inform His rule. No one can alter His rule. No one can withstand the power of the execution of His will. He is the King of over everything. This is repeatedly displayed in the Old Testament in verses like Psalm 103:19, "The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all." That sums it up. He rules over all, all that exists in his universe. That is his universal kingdom. He rules in the sense that he ordains All that is going on in the entire created realm. Angels, the natural universe, the spiritual universe, angels, demons, all persons. He rules over all of them. But there is another understanding of the kingdom of God that is more important for us at this moment. And that is the kingdom of God that is particular. By that we mean God's rule over His redeemed people. He rules over His redeemed people in a separate way. He orders all of the universe. He controls all of the universe. But there are, in the universe, inanimate non-persons. There are, in the universe, demons who experience no blessing from God. There are in the universe people, human beings, who experience the judgment of God, even the judgment of God everlastingly in hell. We're talking about a different kingdom, the particular kingdom where God rules over His redeemed people, those that have been forgiven of their sin, Those that have been delivered from transgression, and therefore from guilt, and therefore from judgment, and therefore from punishment, and therefore from eternal hell, and have the promise of everlasting heaven. His kingdom in its present form over His redeemed people on earth is the church. When you read in the Bible about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, in terms of this world... It is the church. The church is that kingdom. Yes, there will be a future reign of Christ on the earth, the millennial kingdom for a thousand years that the Bible talks about. There is the eternal reign of God and of Christ over the redeemed in the new heaven and the new earth everlastingly. That, too, is the eternal kingdom In which God rules over all of his redeemed, then perfected and brought into his presence forever. But for now, we live in the kingdom of God in its earthly form, which is his redeemed church. The Lord is our master, the Lord Jesus. We have confessed him as Lord and Master. He is our king, he is the king over the church, he is the head of the church, the true church those who are regenerated, justified, being sanctified, and will one day be glorified. You, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, have acknowledged Him as your sovereign King, and you have therefore declared yourself to be a part of His kingdom, and it's not just your declaration, it is the very declaration of heaven itself. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are in His kingdom. He is your sovereign king. That's the church. You live in that sphere. You are no longer a citizen of this world. You are an alien in this world, and you are a citizen of the kingdom by being a part of the church. I just want you to understand the church is where you live and move and have your being. It's where you live, it's where you love, it's where you learn, it's where you worship, it's where you serve. The church is your life. It is your breath, it is your blood. The church has your soul, it has your heart, it has your mind, and it has your body as well. The church is your nation, the church is your country, the church is your state, the church is your city, the church is your tribe, the church is your ethnicity, the church is your family. The church is the realm of your most essential and all satisfying relationships. That was made clear when you were delivered from this present world, when you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The church is your life. You don't love the world, you love the church. That's who you are as a Christian. Church is not something you do on Sunday. The church is where you live your entire life and where all your essential needs and purest desires and holy aspirations and longings are met. On a personal note, I love the church. I love the church everywhere and uh, everywhere I have gone over the years around the world and met with the people of God those who are part of the redeemed church, everywhere I have gone to fellowship with those in the eternal heavenly kingdom, I have expressed and received that love. It doesn't matter whether it's in the jungle of South America or whether it's with the Maori in New Zealand or whether it's in Asia, whether it's with believers in China, whether it's in Europe, wherever it might have been across this planet, Africa. I love the church. And no matter where I go, even with people I've never met, there is a bond of love. Those are my people. That's my nation. That's my tribe. That's my family. I have loved the church really all my life, since a little child. It is where my parents first took me, right after I was born. It's where I, I first heard the Word of God preached by my grandfather and my father. It's where I was first taught the stories of the Bible, which even to this day are vivid in my mind. It's where I sat in a very little chair and had a very, very big teacher <laughs> tell me stories out of the Word of God and call me, to trust in Jesus Christ. It's where I came to believe the Bible and then to believe the Gospel. It's where I learned to worship. It's where I learned to sing the songs of the redeemed beginning in their most simple forms as a child. It's where I learned to serve the Lord. It's where I learned to love and be loved by the saints. Church is the place my whole life where I've made all my friends. Church is the place where I met Patricia, God's best gift to me. Church is the place I raised my children. Church is the place where my grandchildren are. It is to the church that I have given my whole life without a split second of regret. What a privilege. The church is my life, has been my life, will be my life forever because we're all going to be together in glory. Along the way, the Lord called me to be a pastor and then He called me here and I have tried to teach you to love not only Christ but to love the church. And I've also tried to raise up other men and women in leadership who could teach others to love the church. I've tried to raise up young men through the seminary and the Master's University, young women, wherever, to love the church. I've had a lifelong love for the church that I want to share. We have a shepherd's conference to try to help men love the church more and train God's people to love the church more. My Christian experience has never been about law. It's always been about love. It's never been about rules. It's always been about affections. It's always been that I love the Lord and I love who the Lord loves. I love the church. And I've tried to teach you over these many decades to love the Lord and to love His church. And you are good students. You have come to love the church. I see it in your faithfulness. I see it in your sacrifice. I see it in your giving. I see it in your serving. I see it in your joy. And all I have ever desired in service to the Lord was that the church would love Him and love whom He loves. I want you to understand the church. I don't want you to have any vague ideas about the church or your necessary relation to the church. I want you to be able to fully love the Lord and the church. And so, again, after many years, I want to go back and talk about the church. I believe that our Lord deserves the love that He demands for Himself. And I believe he deserves the love that he demands for his church. And in all honesty, I am greatly disturbed with the popular idea that you can have a personal relationship with Christ and be detached from the church. That is just a very odd and unacceptable disconnect. Like saying I'm connected to the head but not to the body. Makes no sense. But it is becoming increasingly popular to say, I have a personal relationship with Christ, but no real relationship to the church. Then I would say immediately, your relationship with Jesus Christ is far from what it ought to be, because loving Him and not loving His church is not acceptable to Him. Rarely do I hear people talk about commitment to the church, love for the church, devotion to the church even covenanting to be faithful to the church joining the church being a member of the church we have some trends that the culture is imposing upon us that drive people away from this commitment trends i guess you could put them under a couple of titles one to be ecclesiastical consumerism Where I have a personal relationship with Christ, and and I sort of live my Christian life uh, based upon whatever appeals to me. I'm over here, I'm over there, I'm here, I'm there, I'm bouncing around and shopping my Christianity. No long term relationships, no deep devotion, no lasting spiritual dynamics among the people of God with whom I live. I'm a shopper, I'm a consumer. And that's the world we live in, and and I consume my Christianity in the doses and the forms that appeal to me. It's about me. You can go so far as to create your own media religion. You have the music that you want to listen to on your iPhone or whatever other device you use. You have the preaching that you want to listen to available to you. You download that. You can download bits and pieces of your own basic smorgasbord choice and create your own religion. That's becoming increasingly popular. Sort of personalized media church. Another thing that I think is very threatening to the reality of life in the church is cyber church auditing the church from a distance. Auditing the church from a distance. I don't go to church, but but I I tune in, live stream, or I listen on the radio, or my church is on TV, that's not even close to fulfilling what the Lord expects out of a believer. What happens with ecclesiastical consumers and cyber church people and self-styled media religionists is that they neglect all that a church really is. And that starts with, they neglect the ordinances, baptism, the regular time at the Lord's table, corporate worship, mutual ministry, service. They also avoid accountability. They're living in the world of their own, and it's a world that essentially makes them anonymous. Let me tell you something about sin. If you're a believer, sin wants you alone. Oh, we have some replacement events for the church. You can go to places with big crowds on a Sunday, and uh, lots of folks will flow in there. They'll turn the lights off, and then they'll turn on the strobe lights, and there'll be a bunch of wild music. That's the pseudo-church. That's an event event. That's a repeated event that is intended to replace the church. And generally speaking, it mocks the church as out of touch with the culture, out of touch with what people want. And very often, that pseudo church has a pseudo pastor. It's really very little more than a sort of personality cult or personality club, it's all about style all about entertainment. Here's the thought. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be just wonderful if somebody came to you, and it could happen to any or all of us, and said, I have just come to faith in Christ. I'm looking for a church. And you could say, Really? There's one over there. There's one on that corner. Just find some place that says church. Go there. You'll be fine. Just look for a place marked church. And you'll be safe. And you'll be blessed. Now you know you can't say that. You'd be afraid to say that. You'd think you'd be guilty before God for saying that because you could send somebody to a church that would destroy them. Now you might be able to say that if you were in a country where Christians had long been seriously persecuted. True Christians were being persecuted so that false Christianity gets driven out, and the only churches, might be hard to find, but they would be real churches, and you could say, go there. But that's not true in our culture. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, and I can remember as a, as a child growing up, and being in a lot of different churches, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say like we used to be able to say, find a church? Because all churches follow the Lord, and all churches honor the Bible, and all churches are where you can worship Christ. Just find a church. Find a gathering of Christians. You'll be okay. Because wherever Christians gather, you'll find sound doctrine, true worship, discernment, true love, true holiness, humility, joy, godly shepherds, and gospel witness. Really? You can't say that. In fact, immediately when somebody asks you that question, you get defensive. And you feel like you've got to protect this person, right? You can't go there. Don't go there. Don't... Look, between here and the freeway, don't go anywhere but here. <laughs> I can just tell you. You can't say that. You can't say that. Why is it so hard? Why? Why do we get mail and constantly? I can't find a faithful church. After all, it shouldn't be difficult. What does uh, Scripture say a church is? Well, here's what it says: the church is heaven on earth. It's going to be a heavenly experience brought down to earth. It's not going to be anything like the world. The church is is going to be the place where you hear the truth proclaimed because the church is the pillar and foundation of divine truth. It's the gathering of true worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth. It's a collection of God-glorifying, Christ-honoring saints, fellowshipping in love and service to their King and to each other. It's people literally burning with a passion for holiness and Christ-likeness. A church is a fellowship where the superficial is replaced by the supernatural and where carnal desires are replaced by spiritual desires. That's a church. A church, I think, is defined by its desires. The best definition of boredom that I ever read is this Boredom is the desire for desire. When you've reached the point where you don't want anything, that's boredom. That can't be true of a Christian. I don't need to be entertained. That's not what I desire. I have desires, very strong desires their holy aspirations and holy affections. And the place where my deepest and most lasting and penetrating desires are all fulfilled is in the life of the church. Nothing outside the church satisfies my desires because those desires are cultivated in the new creation and by the work of the Holy Spirit. I could never be bored I could never be bored because my desires are strong toward God and strong toward Christ and strong toward the Holy Spirit and strong toward the Word of God and therefore inseparable from life in the church. If you don't have a particular strong interest in the church, you better do a little inventory on what you desire. The world can suck you up and you can desire a whole lot of things that will intrude on and curtail what you really ought to desire, things that can only be satisfied with a full commitment to the church. I can't get here enough. I can't get here fast enough. I can't stay long enough because it's in the communion of the saints in the life of the church that all my highest and best desires are satisfied. Now, when we hear about contemporary churches today, we hear words like this, radical. We are a radical church, or we are a transformational church, or we are an extreme church, or we are um, an awesome church, or we are an emergent church, or we are an alternative church, or we are an innovative church, or we are, I've even seen, an explosive church, really. I don't need high energy. I don't need high emotion. I don't need creativity. I don't need cultural savvy. I do not need to be entertained. Those are not my desires. If you're chasing high energy and entertainment, you're running from the church. I don't need a radical, contemporary, transformational, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, explosive church. I don't need that. I just need an ordinary church. There is an ordinary church. There is an ordinary church. I just wish churches were ordinary so that we could say to people, just pick one. It used to be a lot more ordinary when I was young. And now churches can be the most dangerous place in the community. So what is an ordinary church? What do you mean an ordinary church? I mean a normal, customary, regular, common, ordinary church. What would that be like? Well, here we go. You'd have a saved congregation. A saved congregation. That's a church. They would be subject to the authority of Scripture gladly. They would be led by mature, godly pastors and teachers They would be devoted to sound doctrine and serious theology. Their worship would be elevated, beautiful, and have a tone of seriousness. They would be constantly in prayer. They would hold strong convictions based on sound doctrine. They would be spiritually discerning. They would be protective of God's flock, protecting them from all sin and error, they would be pursuing holiness and humility, loving each other sacrificially, discipling one another, and proclaiming Christ by corporate testimony and individual witness. That's a church. That's an ordinary church. Just ordinary. That's what Scripture says the church should be. Try to find one. Not easy. By the Sweet providence of the Lord, here's one that ascribes to God the glory and seeks to be this kind of church. We've always wanted to be just an ordinary church. We have an extraordinary Lord, but we want to be an ordinary church. The Lord is extraordinary because there's one of Him. We're ordinary because there should be thousands of us. We don't want to be known for uniqueness. We don't want to be known for cleverness. We don't want to be known for innovation. We don't want to be known for our ability to adapt to the culture. We just want to be the ordinary church doing what our extraordinary Lord desires so that all the glory goes to Him. Now, so what is your responsibility or commitment to the ordinary church? You have one here. So what's your... Relationship to this church, is it marginal, is it sporadic, is it indifferent, or is it full commitment? This is your family, these are your people, this is the kingdom in which you live. Even in the book of Acts, they knew the church. Three thousand people are converted on the day of Pentecost, how did they know? They counted them. They knew who they were. Later on in the few chapters in the book of Acts, 5,000 more added to the church. You come into chapter 6 and they're already trying to figure out how to minister to the needs of certain widows and, and they've got men who teach and men who can oversee those ministries that are called deacons. The church begins to have to care for its people. And all through the pattern of the New Testament, the church is expressing its love for the Lord by demonstrating its love for each other. The apostles write letters to the church to inform the church and to inform church leaders of those things that are critical for the life of the church. Members were tracked in the book of Acts. If you went from one city to another, there were letters of commendation which you took with you so that that new group of believers would know you were a Christian and you would come with the commendation of a church in another place. Paul talks about those letters of commendation. New Testament letters are written to churches. Paul's letters are written to churches or to pastors of churches, in the case of Timothy and Titus. The general epistles of Peter and James were written to believers collectively. You didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. Without a personal relationship with the church, if you were living then, because the only way you heard from God was when a letter came that was inspired by the Holy Spirit and read to the church. All the epistles, basically, either to the leaders of a church, responsible leaders in the church, or to the church. I just don't understand how it is that evangelical professing Christians have come to treat the church. With indifference. It's just an evidence of the cheapness of their claim to follow Christ. Now let me just wrap up for this morning by giving you a few ways to see this. You may be ignorant of the church, and and I'm helping to fill in some of the gaps in your understanding. You may have been indifferent toward the church, disconnected from the church, looking in but being outside because you're ignorant. You didn't know what your responsibility was. I um, hope I've helped a little bit with that. You may be fighting against a desire to hide your life, which doesn't help you. Sin loves to have you alone. You may dread a responsibility that might be given to you because you're very... Satisfied to be doing the things that you want to do? Whether it's ignorance or whether it's a fear of letting your life be manifest or whether it's not wanting to be given responsibility, whatever the reason, none of them are pleasing to the Lord. You are, if you're a true believer, you're the church. This this isn't the church. This facility isn't the church. These buildings aren't the church. The people are the church, and your response to what the Lord expects of you in His kingdom can be laid, I think, hard on you with just some perspectives. First of all, it's an obedience issue. It's an obedience issue. The New Testament doesn't know anything about a person connected to Christ and not connected to the church, not fully connected to Christ and fully connected to the church. We are Christ's, we live in Christ, Christ lives in us, we live in the church, That we are the church, there is no separation. It's an obedience issue. Will you be obedient? Will you submit to those that are over you in the Lord, who are responsible to shepherd you and have to give an account to God? Will you be obedient to what the Lord wants? He wants you involved in His church fully. Secondly, it's not only an obedience issue, it's a fellowship issue. In Hebrews 10 it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. There are some people who forsake the assembling. Why do we want to assemble? What's the point? He says that you might stimulate one another to love and good works and that you might encourage one another. So here's how fellowship works. It's not about what you get, it's about what you give. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so that you can stimulate others to love and good works, so that you can encourage others. You're not coming here to receive. You're coming here to give. This is where you give your life. It's a fellowship issue. We need your spiritual gifts. We need you to be ministering to one another's, the several dozen of them in the New Testament. We need the mutual burden-bearing, care, love, Friendship, fellowship, communion, which is so purifying, encouraging, upbuilding, uplifting, strengthening. It's a fellowship issue. Thirdly, it's an authority issue. I've already hinted at that, but it's an authority issue. You need to be trained, you need to be discipled, you need to be led, you need to be admonished, you need to be warned, you need to be reproved, rebuked, exhorted, instructed, edified. And there are men and women in the life of the church who have been given the abilities and the gifts to pour all of that into your life, to conform you to the image of Christ. You need to grow up into Christ, Ephesians 4. So that comes by being under the authority of the Word of God. Paul says to Titus, speak with all authority and don't let anybody circumvent that authority because the Bible is absolutely authoritative. It's an authority issue. Whose authority are you under? If, if you're in the cyber church world or if you're in the design your own religion on your computer world, you're under no one's authority. You're the authority. You're playing God with your own spiritual life. You need to be shepherded. You need to be nurtured. You need to be cared for. You need to come under the authority of faithful, loving shepherds and folks who care For your soul. Fourthly, it's an identity issue. It's an identity issue. Eleven times in Ephesians 1, we read in Christ. Eleven times. But overall, in Paul's epistles, he uses that phrase in Christ 160 times. I could say it this way. There is no other phrase that so describes the character and nature of a Christian as that one. You are in Christ. You are inseparable from Christ. If you are inseparable from Christ, He that is joined to the Lord is one Spirit, then you are inseparable from all others who are one in Christ. You are in Christ and therefore you are in His body along with all other believers. It's an identity. You, you bear His name. You literally are one with Christ. This is the mystery of all mysteries, how that the Lord could take us, who are so unworthy and make us one with himself, the church is is where you live out that life in Christ. The Lord has brought you into the place where you literally share his life. He's in you, you're in him like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You are Christ's. It's not as if you're some kind of distant relation to Christ. You are in Christ. You are one with Christ. That is inseparable from Him. That is why the Bible, New Testament, uses the metaphor of the body. He is the head. You're the body. You're in union with Christ. How can you not be in constant communion with His living body, the church? And fifthly, it's a loyalty issue. You're called and gifted to show love and ministry to others. It's about loyalty. Are you so consumed with yourself that you have no thought of what gifts the Spirit of God has given you and what responsibilities the Spirit of God has laid for all of us so that you want to discharge that on behalf of others. The church is where you come to serve others and in so doing you're served. You have no loyalty to your family, no loyalty to your people. Come out of isolation. Love is, of all things, loyal Loyal. And then, as I said, it's a ministry issue. It's a ministry issue. So what's your ministry? What are you doing collectively with other believers to advance the name of Christ and the kingdom of God? What are you doing? When I talk about ministry, I'm talking about what the New Testament calls the fellowship of serving. It's endless here, Grace. It's absolutely endless. The ministries that go on here. The collections of people that are engaged in ministry is 24-7, non-stop. How are you engaged? How are you engaged in the fellowship of serving? So, I'm talking to you about an obedience issue, a fellowship issue, an authority issue, an identity issue, one with Christ, a loyalty issue. Do you, do you love the family? And a ministry issue. What are you doing, along with other believers, in a ministry advancing the kingdom. And then it's a truth issue, number seven. It's a truth issue. People who jump around get a kind of an eclectic understanding of truth. People who are part of a church that is faithful to teach the Word of God get a systematic understanding of the Word of God. That's why we talk about so often the necessary expository ministry of the pulpit so that we're teaching you the Word of God in the same way that the Lord inspired the Bible. It's a book that goes from beginning to end and it reasons and goes through the logical process of unfolding truth. You can't hit and miss, pick and choose, and get a cohesive doctrine. It's a truth issue. In your church where you're committed and faithful, there should be continuity of teaching, integrity of doctrine, because obviously the truth saves us, the truth sanctifies us, the truth comforts us. It's the most important thing in the world. We don't want to be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine because we're ignorant. It's a truth issue. And then finally, in my little list, it's an evangelism issue. It's an evangelism issue. You say, well, I, I talk to people about the Lord all the time. Well, I'm glad you do that. You should do that. But let me tell you what our Lord said about evangelism. Listen to these words. John 13:34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, that's a high standard, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Ask yourself, how had He loved us? Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his what? His life for his friends. So how did He love us? Supremely. How did He love them that very night when He was headed to the cross? He loved them by doing the lowliest possible duty. He washed their filthy feet. He loved them humbly. He loved them sweetly, graciously, generously, sacrificially. So the Lord says, this is the new commandment now. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So do the people around you that are non-Christians know you are? love Christ because of how obviously you love His church. Is that defining in your life? Do you have to say to someone, I'm a Christian, you know, because they otherwise wouldn't know it because you don't have any visible, manifest life in the church? How do you know someone's a Christian? It's not because they say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ it's because they say I have a corporate relationship with Jesus Christ I love his church that's my life his church you need to be a public open, faithful member of his church for his glory in response to all that he's done for you We're not perfect. We're not everything we want to be. Certainly not everything He wants us to be. But we are committed to being an ordinary church, following the pattern of Scripture. And you need to be an ordinary Christian, a part of the ordinary church. Father, we are grateful again this morning for wonderful time of fellowship and worship. We thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks. Thank you for what you've done here in this congregation through the years, for your blessing which has been showered on us. We don't want a personal relationship with you in any limited sense. That's not enough. We want to be one with you and one with every other person who is one with you. We want to show the world the truth of the gospel and our salvation by our love for the church, which is the evidence of our love for the Savior. How can we say we love you, Lord Jesus, if it isn't obvious how much we love your church, the church you love, and for whom you gave your life. Help us, Lord, to be all that you want us to be. Amen.
2: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace To You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace To You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to you reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
1: edition.
4: Um, Redshift says, does God have a wonderful plan for your life? And you're listening Tory.
5: It's the cliche that won't go away. Is there any truth in the very popular evangelical slogan, God has a wonderful plan for your life? And the answer to that is, Of course he does, depending on how you define the word wonderful. Unfortunately, without context, to tell somebody who is an unregenerate pagan, God has a wonderful plan for your life, I'm almost certain. They do not perceive that to mean, you mean everlasting life? In a mansion prepared for me by God himself? Complete forgiveness of sins? That is a wonderful plan. Most likely, they do not think that is the definition of wonderful, but that is the biblical definition of God's wonderful plan for your life. It is not about temporal blessings. It is about eternal blessings and the ability to have shalom while we're still here. Christian, you shouldn't be
6: telling a lost, unrepentant sinner that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Without Christ, they're not actually in his love. They're under his wrath. And their idea of God's plan for their life is their plan for their life. So you walk up to what we know about a sinner. He is self-centered. He's autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. He has his own dreams. And he is in love with himself. So you walk up to this man and you say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And He goes, what? God loves me? That's fantastic. I love me too. And you're even saying that he loves me more than I love me?
3: Now, that sounds impossible.
6: How could anyone
3: have such a great love?
1: And God has a wonderful plan for my Oh, I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And you're telling me that if I accept this Jesus, he will help me
6: with all my wonderful plan and i can have my best life now well then i'll take a god like that you got two of them What you should tell an unbeliever is what the Bible says. Show them their sin according to the scriptures, that they have broken the law of the creator of the universe, and they stand guilty before a holy God. It's only when the Spirit convicts them of their sin that they can know the grace and mercy of God in the sacrifice of his Son. Then they will see the immensity of his love and his wonderful plan through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we understand the text.
5: God has a fantastic beyond our wildest imaginations and dreams planned for our life why because we have so great a salvation the focus of god's wonderful plan is not becoming successful or wealthy or entirely healthy it is focused on the gospel of jesus christ that's what paul meant when he said no eye is seen no ear is heard It wasn't talking about heaven, per se. It was talking about God's plan of redemption. That is what makes life wonderful. Even if you live in the poorest place on the planet, even if you are enduring a very bad diagnosis and medical regimen to make you healthier, you will endure with a sense of it is well with my soul no matter what you are going through when you recognize my biggest problem has been solved. Whatever confronts me today, it's peanuts compared to facing the wrath of God. That issue has been resolved for me by his son. And now when we stare at that, and when we realize that we have been forgiven by God and spared from his lot of judgment, we go, frankly,
1: I don't even care all
5: that much about what's going on right here. A question from Ray Comfort that is quite poignant. Let's just say the date is September 10, 2001. And you are visiting a couple of buildings known as World Trade Center Towers 1 and 2. And you know the next day airplanes are going to fly into those buildings and kill 3,000 people what would your message be god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life it doesn't sell and if our gospel message cannot sell in one context then we should not try to sell it in another context that sort of works you see the reason god has a wonderful plan for your life can be pulled off in the West. We are living in the land of opportunity.
7: Overall,
5: you work hard. Typically, good things come. You study hard. You get good grades. You get married. You stay married. You are more likely to have a wonderful plan fulfilled for your life because of the circumstances. But if you can't go to the Roma people, the gypsies of Romania who are living in ramshackle huts, lean-tos, filthy, no toilets, no water, no electricity, and worst of all, no internet. If you can't tell them God has a wonderful plan for your life, then we need to reconsider our gospel message, and the good news is it's better news than God has a wonderful plan for this Life. Whether you like it or not, if you join the Wretched Club, we can produce more videos like the one that you just saw. Would you please consider supporting us by becoming a Wretched Club member? And you get a bunch of stuff when you do. Now, if you're saying, I can't afford that every month, we understand there are some things you can still do to help us. You can share these videos. You can follow us on social media. And most important, you can, and let me tell you something, we need this, pray
8: for us.
5: Either way, your support will be most appreciated. That's Wretched, and their website uh,
4: is wretched.tv. W R E T C H E D dot T V and also catch on YouTube as Wretched. And the next one I do is play a song. This is called before a throw guard by Gofish, you know, tributary.
5: Are you familiar with the Tomorrow Clubs? I love this ministry. I love it a lot. This is a video from yet another underserved people group in Eastern Europe. These people are dirt poor. These people have been neglected. These people rarely, if ever, see a missionary darken the doorstep of their town. Now, I know towns don't have doorsteps, but you get my point. Take a look now at a Tomorrow Club story showing the amazing work of this ministry that you could support by visiting
9: TomorrowClubs.org. My name is Yuri. I am from Turbavka Village. There is no church in my village and no Christians. Three years ago, we started a tomorrow club in our village, and now about 30 kids come to the club. I believe God himself started this club for the children of our village. We meet in the old house of culture. It's very cold there, but the kids don't care. They love to come to the tomorrow club. They love the program and the team of leaders. This is the only place where children have an opportunity to learn about God, pray to him, sing and play. Most of the kids come from families with low income where parents abuse alcohol and drugs. The Tomorrow Club is an oasis of something good and beautiful in their difficult world. I thank God for it.
5: tomorrow clubs an oasis of something good and beautiful in nations that do not experience the fruit of capitalism at least not yet we're talking about ukraine romania moldova these countries are poor georgia the poverty rate it's just a poverty that you and i can't even fathom in the united states The Tomorrow Clubs reaches these kids, but they don't just preach the gospel to them. Oh, they preach the gospel to them, but they do much more. They disciple these kids, and there is a method to their madness. They want to reach the kids in the village, which will revitalize the local dying churches, and these kids... They tend to talk a lot when they get home. These kids preach the gospel then to their parents. Tomorrow clubs, brilliant, reaching the kids with the
9: gospel to reach the parents with the gospel. My dream for the kids in our Tomorrow Club is that they would continue to grow closer to God and that God would use them to reach their unbelieving families. I know that sooner or later their parents will learn about God from them, and when it happens, it will be a wonderful thing. We are praying for all the parents and thank God that they allow their kids to come to our club. It is a great gift and a blessing for our little village to have a tomorrow club. These kids are our future. When we teach them and invest in them, we can help shape who they will become. I want to thank all the supporters of the Tomorrow Club. Maybe they don't understand the significance of their support, but I want to let them know that they are doing very important work. They are investing in our future, and may God bless them. $30 a month. To
5: make 30 disciples, it's even a good deal. If you would like to join the hundreds of wretched people who support at least one Tomorrow Club, visit TomorrowClubs.org. Whether you like it or not, if you join the Wretched Club, we can produce more videos like the one you just saw. Would you please consider supporting us by becoming a Wretched Club member, and you get a bunch of stuff when you do. Now, if you're saying, I can't afford that every month, we understand there are some things you can still do to help us. You can share these videos. You can follow us on social media, and most important, you can, and let me tell you something, we need this, pray for us. Either way, your support will be most appreciated.
4: That's the uh, Richard tomorrow Club Club. Um, I Even mean, if you can't give, like, the whole thirty dollars I think they, either, like, give partial money to them, uh, donate to them, and... See, what I'm going to do now is this is a play from Answers and Justice here on Trooply Tori. Fossils,
8: where'd they come from? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. Fossils are often thought to be millions of years old and the result of slow and gradual processes over long periods of time. But did you know the Bible provides a much better explanation for the origin of fossils? In Genesis, we read about the global flood of Noah's day. This catastrophic event would have ripped up miles of sediment and redeposited it in layers. Billions of organisms would have gotten trapped and buried in this sediment, eventually becoming the fossils we dig up today. This didn't take millions of years. It took just a few short months during the flood. Yes, the flood explains why we find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth.
0: Want to learn more about fossils and the flood and our life-size Noah's Ark? Go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Also, listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
8: Perfectly preserved. This is Ken Ham, president of the life size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. Yesterday we learned that fossils weren't formed slowly over millions of years. They rapidly and catastrophically formed during the global flood of Noah's day. Now, is there evidence of this? Well, yes. All over the world we find exquisitely preserved fossils. Some of these fossils even show soft tissue structures. For example, in Australia we find fossilized jellyfish. Now, if you've ever seen a jellyfish washed up on a beach, you'll notice they quickly turn into blobs in the sun. But these fossil jellyfish are clearly and easily identifiable as jellyfish. They had to be buried Very quickly before the sun could destroy them. Fossils like this support the Bible's account of a global flood.
0: Listen to this program again, view a transcript, or listen to other episodes by Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. You can also sign up for insights from Ken at AnswersRadio.com. Fossil Graveyards.
8: This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Where in the world can you find a toothed whale and a marsupial possum together? Well, in Tasmania at Fossil Bluff. You see, these creatures are part of a massive fossil graveyard of thousands of creatures all buried together. And this isn't the only fossil graveyard. We find them all over the world. One graveyard is made up of trillions of microscopic marine creatures. It stretches through Europe into the Middle East and even into the Midwest of the United States. You'd probably recognize a small part of these chalk beds at the famous White Cliffs of Dover in England. Now what could possibly bury creatures on such a massive scale? The global flood of Noah's Day.
0: Learn more about geology, fossils and the global flood when you visit our faith-building website, AnswersRadio.com Listen to other episodes in this five-part series at AnswersRadio.com Living Fossils?
8: This is Ken Ham, author of the book on Compromising the Church in Six Days. In 1938, a fisherman pulled up an odd-looking fish. It was a coelacanth a fish that secular scientists thought went extinct 70 million years ago. Then in 1994, a park officer accidentally found a Wollemi pine tree in Australia. Now these pine trees were thought to have gone extinct 200 million years ago. What do living fossils like this tell us? Well, if evolution and millions of years are true, then surely the coelacanth or the Wollemi pine would have evolved or gone extinct over tens of millions of years, yet we still find them today virtually unchanged. This certainly fits with the biblical account of created kinds, not evolutionary ideas.
0: Sign up for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You can also view a transcript of this fascinating program at AnswersRadio.com.
8: Fast-forming fossils? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to the family-friendly Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky. Most people think it takes millions of years to form fossils, but fossils can actually form quickly. Did you know they found a petrified hat and a clock and spark plugs in rocks? Those obviously didn't take millions of years to form. Actually, fossils must form quickly. If a plant or animal dies, it will quickly decay unless it's very deep enough to keep scavengers and microbes from destroying it. Around the world are billions and billions of fossils, what could rapidly bury so many creatures? Well, it didn't happen slowly over millions of years. A worldwide flight as described in Genesis would have quickly buried these billions of creatures.
0: Want to learn more about what God's Word says on marriage? Visit our Bible-upholding website, AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
4: Personal favorites of theirs, both Fish, Love, Please God. And like it says, you keep going to all the way home to heaven. And you're seeing Tributor Radio. And this is from WWTT, What? When we understand text. And this is God, What is God's will for your life here on Tributor
6: is God's will for your life? Well, the Bible says give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you not the answer you were looking for that's probably because what you actually want is to have your fortune told many ask about the will of God as though it's the Christian equivalent of wishing upon a star when they talk about God's will for their life what they're probably talking about is the hopes and dreams they have and it's God's will for them to have them but the Bible isn't going to tell you what career you should pursue or where you will live or what tax bracket you should be in or whether you should get married or not get married for those kinds of questions the Bible says wisdom is found in an abundance of counselors Ephesians 5: 15 through 17 says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, understanding the will of the Lord doesn't mean what he's going to reveal to you in a vision or a dream or some false prophet trying to con you. It's understanding what he's already revealed in his word. Know what the word of God says and how to apply it, and it will make you wise. The Bible also says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So what is God's will for your life? That you praise him in all circumstances, and that you live holy lives in Christ Jesus, according to his word, the Bible, when we understand the text.
4: Here's another one from when we understand text, because there's really the Sheck coming out. So this is about the Sheck the uh what would they first have a book about it, but then uh, there's a movie about it. So here we go. The shack verse of the Bible here um Triputori.
6: The novel by William Paul Young has sold over 20 million copies and has been made into a feature film. It's about a man whose daughter was murdered, leading him to ask why a loving God would allow such evil. He goes back to the place where she died and meets God as a woman who goes by Papa, the Holy Spirit, also a woman, and Young's version of Jesus. Though the shack is fiction, it teaches unbiblical ideas. Young said he believes about God. He believes God the Father was crucified with Jesus, a heresy called Patripassianism that was condemned in the third century. The Son of God, was crucified on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God the Father. Young's version of Jesus says that he's the best way to have a relationship with God, but the Bible says he's the only way to God. Young's Jesus teaches that God submits to us. Psalm 2 says God laughs at such pride and holds them in derision. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God submits to no one, but we are to submit to him. Young's God says that he places no expectations on us, but God clearly commands that we turn from our sin and obey his son, Jesus. Those who do have eternal life, those who don't, are under his wrath. Young's God says that all people are his children whom he loves, but the Bible says only those in Christ are his adopted sons and daughters. Those who do not believe are children of wrath, and their father is the devil. The shack contains a false gospel and teaches only wrong things about God. We know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error when we understand the
1: text. To find those at, on YouTube as
4: WWTT and also on their website, www.tt.com, www.tt.com, oh. and you're for me, Liz Cantrell here on Chippy Tulley Radio, and i going to do another song for you, this is called The Old Road Trust here on Chippy Toll Radio. One track nine of Ray Comfort. This is from Wretched here on YouTube. Let me see on Truth Feet All Radio.
5: Prepare to go into the mind, and it's going to be a scary journey, into the mind of one Ray Comfort. Perhaps you know, uh, Mr. Comfort, he is from a New Zealand, and he is a tireless Evangelist. He doesn't stop witnessing to anybody he sees in any circumstance, including at church. He is just a witnessing machine. Recently, Ray Comfort sent me a text with a video attached that said, If you need some encouragement, watch
7: this. One day, Sue and I found a helpless little caterpillar in that garden. So we put him in a cage and fed him on milkweed, because that's all they eat, milkweed. And boy did he eat until he became a fat little fellow and made his way to the top of the cage. He then shook off his old skin and hid in his cocoon. For days it looked like nothing was happening, but we knew better. Unseen by human eyes, the miracle of metamorphosis was taking place. Earth from that cocoon. And so we put him in the sun to let him be what he was created to be. If you have been born again, you'll know that God picked you up in your helpless and sinful state and told you to desire this to light itself
0: You obediently shook
7: off that old, sinful, fleshly nature, and then he hid you in Christ. While the world mocked you for hiding in the cozy cocoon of Christianity, you knew better. You knew that God was doing an unseen miracle, and one day he'll bring you forth as the new creature you are in Christ. Then he'll take you in his faithful hands and place you in his glorious kingdom to bask in the warmth of his love. So if you're going through a tough time, trust him with all your heart. Because the same God that worked the miracle of metamorphosis and that chrysalis is at work in you. There's a new world coming for those that love God, where there'll be no more pain, disease, suffering, or death. He will wipe he glorified together. It is then that we'll be what he created us to be.
5: To Ray laying down the gauntlet. All right, Mr. Gospel Analogy Boy, how's about doing a video with a rusty razor, shaving cream, and an ingrown whisker? Ah! And then he sent back this text
7: Did you know that every hair on your sinful head is numbered, and that every whisker is seen by God, even the ingrown one? Did you know that religion can't save you from sin on the Day of Judgment? That's like using an old rusty razor. It's not going to cut it. Only the grace of God and Jesus Christ can make you as white as snow. Repent and trust alone in Jesus, and God will forgive and cleanse you in an instant. Then you'll have something to smile about. Told
5: you! It was a scary journey into the mind of Ray Comfort, who never stops
4: That was from Wretched, and you could hear that again uh, or see it. It's um, Wretched, their YouTube page, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Wretched, and it's called Inside the One-Track Mind of Race Comfort. (laughs) That was pretty cool. like the uh, butterfly analogy because usually it's not... Uh, like, that makes a new, it's about new life in Jesus, and, and that one even took it further, it took about one day, being able to go to heaven, and be what God wants us to be. And, let's see, okay, it's, tort is done now, so what I'm gonna do is, gonna go out with the the CNCM friends with the VIBLE and till next week. Bye for now.